Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, Revelation chapter 20. I mentioned chapter 19 because I wanted to kind of just kind of set the scene. Um, last week when we were looking at the Battle of Armageddon, I, I, I said, you know, I really... I really think it's a misnomer to call it a battle because there is no battle. I mean, basically the armies, I don't even think they get a a shot fired off before God wipes them out. And uh, so in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and on the and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So that's how we ended chapter 19. And so the next question we might have is, well, well, now what? Or, or then what happens next? And so I have a, a, some questions that I was kind of asking myself, and we're going to look at those this morning. First of all, the first question is, are there any survivors left on the earth? I mean, think about it. There's been famines. There's been wars. There's been God's judgment on the earth and earthquakes and you name it. And, and it's like, well, is there any survivors even on the earth after, at this point? But then also a question that maybe it's an age-old question, and, and it finally gets resolved here in chapter 20. What happens to Satan? What happens to him? And then finally, what happens next? And I really think Revelation chapter 20 ties up all those loose ends and, and answers all those questions and even a, a little bit more that we'll be looking at this morning. But what I want to do is I want to tackle that middle question first, the, the middle one. The second question is, what happens to Satan? And so that's what I want to look at first of all. Well, from reading Revelation 19, 20, and 21, we know that the beast and the false prophet, the beast being the Antichrist, and the false prophet are thrown directly into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in the Greek, it's unto the ages of ages, which means eternity. They can't, they can't get any more expressive of eternity in the Greek language. And so, you know, some people think, well, you know, hell is temporary or, or you know, they're, 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 eventually God's going to take them. No, no, they're going to be tormented forever and ever. And you might say, well, wait a minute. How could someone be burned or be tormented in fire forever and ever and eventually not be consumed? I mean, you know, you, you have a campfire out in your backyard and pretty soon you have to throw another log on the fire because the, the fire has consumed the wood. So how can a person be tormented literally day and night forever and ever and not be consumed? Well, I have a question for you, if, if that's your question. How could God cause a bush to remain burning in the wilderness long enough for Moses to see it, to come and to hear the you know, Lord speaking to him, and that bush not get consumed? Here's another one. How could God cause a fire to burn the ropes binding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet they themselves were not burned? Their clothes were not burned. In fact, they came out, they didn't even smell like they'd been in a fire. How could God do that? Well, I don't know how he could. God only knows how. But I know that God controls, after all, he created fire, that he controls fire in those two cases to serve a purpose. And I think he's going to do the same thing with the lake of fire. So people that will be cast into the lake of fire will be tormented forever, but never consumed. They'll never be allowed to be put out of their misery, and they'll never be annihilated. That's very somber, sobering when we think about that. So we know the destiny of the beast and the false prophet. At the end of the tribulation, they, are, they're not even, they won't even be at the great white throne judgment. They are cast alive into the lake of fire. That's it for them. But what about Satan? And that's what we'll look at first here. Verse 1 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I want you to skip down to verse 7 of chapter 20. 
Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And now go down to verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's what happens to Satan. (laughs) But I want to look back here at verse 1. Verse 1, it tells us that an angel coming down from heaven, he's got the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And if you look at verse 1, it says an angel. It's a nondescript angel. It's not Michael, the archangel. It's not Gabriel. It's not the strong angel that we read about in chapter 5 of Revelation. It's not even the mighty angel that we read about in chapter 10. It's not even the angel with great authority who illuminates the whole earth with his glory that we studied in chapter 18. It's just an angel. It's probably a low-ranking angel. My guess. I mean, I don't know for sure. But, you know, if he was in the military, for example, if he was in the Air Force, he'd be an airman. If he was in the Navy or the Coast Guard, he'd be a seaman apprentice. If he was in the Army or the Marines, he'd be a buck private, you know, a private. Just this, God takes this, just this angel. We're, we're not even given his name or anything. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. In fact, he led a rebellion, we know, and, and a third of, of, the, of the angels followed him in rebellion. He was a leader of a third of the angels, the fallen angels that are now demons. But I want you to understand something. He is not the evil opposite of Jesus Christ. Some people have that mistaken thought that, that Satan is somehow an equal with God, and, 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 and so there's this real battle between good and evil and stuff. Listen, Satan is a created angel that sinned. God's not in a struggle against Satan. In fact, there is no struggle. Satan is allowed to do things to serve God's purpose. And I think one of the problems with us Christians is we give Satan way, way, way too much credit than he deserves. In fact, we're told in Isaiah 14, verse 16 and 17, it's speaking about Satan or Lucifer. It says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? We're going to see, finally we're going to see Satan as he is. And we're going to go, that's the one that led the world in rebellion? That's the one that caused all the, the havoc and the murder and the death and the destruction and the deception throughout, the, throughout man's history. That's him? You see, we give him way, way, way too much credit. Also, think about this. If God can use a nondescript angel to lay hold of Satan, the prince of darkness, and cast him into the bottomless pit, which in the Greek's the abuso, he can also use you for mighty things. I think that's another good lesson. How many of you know who the Apostle Paul is? Most people do, right? He's, he wrote most of the New Testament. Anybody know what his name was before? It was Saul, right? Yeah, Saul of Tarsus. How many of you know the name of the man that prayed for him to receive his sight? We don't really, some of you might know it. I know it because I got it in my notes here. But you don't think about that, right? I want to read this to you. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read this. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so he might receive his sight. Now, how did Ananias get that opportunity to lay hands on Saul of Tarsus, who eventually become the Apostle Paul, who'd write most of the New Testament. What a mighty man of God. How, you know, did he, was he like some special, super-duper Christian? Or, you know, did, was he just, it just says he was a certain disciple, just an ordinary guy who loved the Lord. And God was able to use him. 
you know, some of you, you know, we pray for parents or for fathers this morning, and maybe you think, well, you know, I'm, okay, I'm a father, but it's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal. God can use you. You know, the children that you're raising, who knows if the, one of them is going to be the next Billy Graham or, or whatever his sister's name or daughter's name is. <laughs> Ann Graham Lotz. You know, who knows? Who knows what you're, who you're raising right now? So if God can use a nondescript angel to do this mighty work of, of putting Satan in the abuso, he can use you for great things too. Don't shortchange what God can do in your life. So what does this angel do? We're going to look at that. It says that he laid hold on him. And that word laid hold, it means to lay hands on in order to get him into one's power. So this angel has power over Lucifer, over Satan. Well, we know right now, Satan has power over everyone, or anyone, I should say, that is not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Satan has power over their lives. He does not have power over your life, though. If you're a born-again believer, he does not have power over you. But he does over the fallen world, over all unbelievers. And now, But now, at this point here in chapter 20, finally, he's under the power, under the control of someone else. We also find that this angel bound him or binds him. And he bound him with or fastened with chains. Or excuse me, bound means to bind or to fasten with chains or to throw into chains. Now, I, I can just, I'm imagining, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure you can't buy this chain of Menards. Um, I think it's a, it's a chain, but can you imagine if you could buy it in a hardware store? Can you imagine the advertising? This chain is strong enough. It can hold the Prince of Darkness. You know, they'd make a million selling those things. Well, we don't know anything about this chain, but it's strong enough to hold the devil. And I think it's interesting because there was one time when Jesus met a woman who had a spirit of infirmity, the Bible tells us, for 18 years, and she was bent over. She couldn't even raise herself up. And Jesus, of course, healed her, but he healed her on the Sabbath, and so the, the Pharisees were all uptight about that. But he said this, he said, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Excuse me, Satan binds people. He binds people, unbelievers. And now he's bound. I, I don't know, when I was studying this, it's like, you know, finally, justice for the one who causes so much pain and, and misery and destruction in this world. You know, as a pastor, I do counseling once in a while. That's my least favorite thing to do, especially if it's marriage counseling. Pre-marriage is okay, because I like to scare the dickens out of people and stuff and kind of really make them, are you really sure you want to get married? Um, but marriage counseling, that's a tough thing. Or somebody that's maybe suicidal or something. And you know what breaks my heart are alcohol addiction or things like that. You go, man, Satan has such a grip on these guys. Why? You know, Why? And it's so it's so uh, discouraging. Well, finally, he's going to be bound. What a relief! The next thing is that he's once he's laid hold of and bound, he's cast into the bottomless pit. And that word "cast" means to throw or to let go of a thing without caring where caring where it falls. The verb that's used in all of its action in all of its applications in the New Testament retains the idea of impulse. Uh, let me give you an example. I'm afraid of spiders. Some of you may know that. And, you know, there have been times in my life where, you know, there's been a, I've just all of a sudden out of the blue, I've noticed that there's a spider on my shirt. And I freak. And I, and I cast that thing off me. I don't care where it lands. Oh, I want to make sure I know where it lands because I'm going to step on it. Sorry if you like anim animals. But, you know, I, I want to get it off of me. And I don't care where it goes. Just get it off of me. I cast it away from me. That's the idea here. Satan's being cast into the bottomless pit. But you know, he's done that to people as well. In Mark 9, verse 21 and 22, Jesus has just come down from the mountain of transfiguration. And there's a man that's come to his disciples trying to be healed. And, and, and the disciples are unable to do it. And, and so Jesus asked his father, Mark 9, verses 21 and 22, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, this child was demon-possessed. 
and often he has thrown him, that's the same word, cast him into both the, into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And of course, Jesus delivered that, 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 that boy, that young man from his demon possession. But Satan doesn't care for people. He just uses them and, and he, he just as soon cast you away and destroy you. You know, sometimes we think that uh, maybe if you're maybe you're having marriage difficulties, you might think your spouse is the enemy and stuff. No, your spouse isn't the enemy. You have one enemy, and that's Satan. And he may use your spouse in certain ways to say things that you know aren't good or, or to do things or stuff. But but you have one enemy, and that's Satan. Well, he's cast into the bottomless pit, and then it says it shut him up. That means authority to exclude or omit. Right now, the Bible tells us that the devil walks about. He's free to roam this earth. And it says he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But finally, he's going to be like in detention, so to speak. He's going to be shut up where he can't walk about freely and do what he does right now. And then it says it set a seal on him. So, Here's the think about this here. Satan's cast into the bottomless pit, and a seal is placed on the opening, and Satan doesn't escape from this opening. He can't escape from it. The seal is on this opening. He can't escape. At the end of the thousand years, we'll look at later on, at the end of the thousand years, he's released. He doesn't escape. He doesn't find a way to break free. He's released. The seal is removed, in other words. So, that same word sealed is the same word that Pilate, remember Pilate, who was the Roman uh, governor, governor when Jesus was crucified, he sealed the tomb where the body of Jesus laid. And guess what? That seal couldn't keep Jesus in. He busted out of there. He, was, he rose from the dead. That seal couldn't hold Jesus. But this same word, this seal, on the bottomless pit, Satan... He can't break loose of it. He's, he's, he's there. He's sealed. And uh, Jesus, that seal couldn't hold Jesus. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1.13, and it's using the same word, sealed. It says, In whom you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So think about that. Satan's unable to break God's seal on himself. He's also unable to break that seal of salvation on you and on me. What what a blessing. Again, stop giving Satan more credit than he deserves. We're given here a description of Satan in this passage also. Notice the first thing he's called, the dragon. And you recall that kind of harkens back to earlier in, in Revelation when, we, we, when John saw this great sign in heaven of, of the great red dragon that tried to devour the woman's child. And when we were in that chapter, we, we discovered that the woman was the nation of Israel and her child was the Messiah, or Jesus. So the dragon. And then it says that serpent of old. Now that right away should kind of harken back to the Garden of Eden in our minds, right? That's when Satan appeared as a serpent and deceived Eve into sinning against God. And that also reminds us of Satan's method of warfare that he's used ever since the beginning. It's deception. It's deception. You know, for you and I as believers, our best weapon against deception is the truth. That's why I encourage you to study the word, read the word. Don't even listen to what I say and just take that for the gospel. Do what, what Paul said the Bereans do. They, you know, they, they, they would listen to what Paul said. They would go home and they would read it and go, I wonder if it's really true what he's saying here. Our best weapon against deception is truth. And I think about it right now. You think about how the fact that how the truth is being attacked in our culture today, left and right. It's like a lot of people are like, there is no absolute truth, you know, and it's truth is being slammed. What used to be right now is wrong. What's wrong now is proclaimed to be right in our culture. And you go, man, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Well, I think it's because Satan knows his end is approaching and he's going to do as much as he can. 
to destroy as many people as he can because he hates God that much and he hates you and I. So the dragon, the serpent of old, and he's also called the devil. That word the devil means the false accuser or the slanderer. And right now, of course, he stands in heaven accusing the brethren, the Bible says. But that won't last forever. And then finally, Satan, which means the adversary. And Peter uses this in 1 Peter 5.8. I mentioned this verse earlier, but be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, roars about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We have an adversary, and it's not your spouse. It's, the, it's Satan. So in the end, after the thousand years, Satan's cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the prophet, uh, false prophet will have already been. And there's a very common mis- mistake or misunderstanding. He's not going to be the prince of hell. He's not going to be in control of anything in hell. He's going to be a participant of the fires of the destruction of the torment of hell, just like everybody else that followed him in his deception. So that's what happens with Satan. So the good news is he's going to be taken care of finally. What happens next? Go ahead and turn or look at verse 4. It says, And I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So while Satan is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, something else is occurring on earth for a thousand years. And that's the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. We know it as the millennium. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as the kingdom age. It's all referring to the same, same thing. And there's three different views concerning these first six verses of Revelation chapter 20. And I'm not a scholar by any means. So I'm just going to kind of give you a brief overview. And I'm going to kind of stick to what I believe is the correct view. Um, but first of all, there's the premillennial view. And I'll, be, I'll just tell you up front, that's what I'm teaching. That's what I believe in, a, in the premillennial view. I'll explain that in a few minutes. What it means basically, what I believe, that, that the rapture of the church will be followed by a literal seven-year tribulation, the likes of which the world has never experienced. That seven-year tribulation is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel. This is when God is dealing directly with the nation of Israel once more. Once that, that uh, seven-year tribulation is over, it will be followed by the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth from Jerusalem. And, you know, some people, again, there's different views, and I'll explain the other two views here in a moment. But what's kind of interesting, and maybe you've pondered this before. So we're almost done going through the book of Revelation, right? Chapters 4 through 19, all those chapters dealt with the tribulation. All those chapters dealt with just a seven-year period. And now we get to chapter 20, and there's just 10 verses that deal with a thousand years it seems to be like there's kind of an out of balance. You'd think that there'd be more dealing with a thousand years and less with the seven years, right? I think that's what I would think. Why is there so little mentioned in the New Testament about the millennium? And, and here's why I think. Almost, if not all, the Old Testament prophets spoke about the kingdom age. Again, that's the thousand year reign of Christ or the millennium. That's the Latin for that. And notice that John didn't say something like a thousand years. He said for a thousand years. In fact, the Holy Spirit had him repeat it six times. Six times in this thousand years. 
So there are two other views. Again, I'm going to explain them briefly and, and really generally, but there's the post-millennial view. That's an interpretation of chapter 10, 20, which sees, God's, uh, which sees Christ's second coming as occurring after, that's why it says post, after the millennium, or a golden age in which Christian ethics prosper. And some people, uh, you know, earlier, I should I back up here, before the turn of the century, there was a lot of things happening, you know, as far as Christianity. The first and the second great awakenings had already taken place. There was the Welsh revival in the early 1900s. There was this great missionary movement that began. And the church at that point said, boy, you know, it seemed like at that point, the church was going to usher in a thousand years of righteousness prior to Christ's return. And so that view was very popular at the turn of the century. But as the century turned, it went from the 1800s to the 1900s, we had, what, two world wars? We had... um, uh, the Holocaust, all the people that were killed with the rise of communism. And, you know, we're looking now at the 21st century, and it promised to be just as bad, if, if not worse, than the 20th century. So that became less popular. And I, and I know that there's some people that still hold to that post-millennial view. And I think their view is, again, I'm not an expert, is that, you know, Christians, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, and we're going to bring in this golden age, and then Christ will return. So that's the post-millennial view. Then there's another view called the amillennial view. A meaning against, or they don't believe in the millennium, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. To them, the, the amillennials, the thousand-year reign of Christ is not literal, but it's symbolically happening right now. Um, and they say, well, Satan is symbolically or allegorically limited by the work of the cross. And the amillennials... Uh, millennial view, people that take that view, they look at most of the book of Revelation as being symbolic or an allegory. Um, What's interesting, though, is I was doing a little research. During the first 300 years of the church, the first three centuries, uh, the literal premillennial view, it was known then as the chilliest view, which is Greek for thousand, um, was the predominant view. In fact, Papias, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they all believed in a premillennial, a literal premillennial uh, reign of Christ on the earth. Any other view at that time was considered heresy. But about the, uh, I guess it would be about 400 or so, the 3rd, 4th century, whatever, uh, the amillennial view became popularized by Augustine. And... Uh, because that view gives a much greater emphasis on the church, it was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church because it really fit in with what uh, the Catholic Church was trying to do. And today, most Reformation churches hold the amillennial view. And I want to just say something right here. It doesn't mean they're heretics, okay? I'm not saying that. In fact, there's some wonderful believers that have a different view on chapter 20. So don't get me wrong. If you're here and you, you feel that way, I'm not calling you a heretic or anything. But I personally, I personally believe the pre-tribulational rapture, premillennial view has the best scriptural support if you take a literal interpretation of the whole of Bible prophecy. If you take a literal interpretation. If you spiritualize and allegorize prophecy, then those other views actually do make more sense. But the problem I have with allegorizing any prophecy or spiritualizing is, What's your criteria for spiritualizing it? How do you decide, well, this is, this is an allegory and this is literal? It becomes very difficult. The other problem is the amillennial view negates the need for a literal nation of Israel in the end times. Now, I'm not saying that amillennials, people that hold that view, are anti-Semites, but that view, amillennialism, is... It part of you know there's I, I know there's variances of it, but a great portion of people that hold that amillennial view also believe in what's called replacement theology, where the church replaces Israel in the promises and the blessings of God, the covenants of God. And so, if you hold if people that hold the amillennial view, it negates the need for a literal nation of Israel in the end times. And I personally think God has a major problem with those who would replace the nation of Israel with the church. And again, this is my opinion. 
This is not thus says the Lord. This is thus says Don. So you can take that and about a dollar and you still can't get a cup of coffee nowadays, but that's about it. Listen, if Satan is symbolically bound, think about what's going on in the world today. He must have a pretty long chain with all that evil going on in the world and he's somehow somehow bound. What would it be like if he was unchained? It would be like, you know, terrible. And then here's my personally, and I'm going to go through this a little bit, but how do you correlate all the Old Testament passages about the kingdom age with a spiritualized or symbolic millennium? We're going to look at some of those. I'm not going to have you turn there because there are so many Old Testament scriptures that deal with the millennium or the kingdom age. I just want to kind of give you a little brief synopsis of some of them. And again, I'm not even covering all of them. But in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9, maybe if you're taking notes, you could just write down the passages and then look it up later today. But Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, here's a little bit of it. It says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. If a wolf was lying down with a lamb right now, it might last for a little while. Pretty soon there'd only be the wolf, right? Be The lamb would be eaten. Um, it says the cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Excuse me. It says the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Again, how do you spiritualize that? How do you turn that into an allegory? If it's not literal. But can you imagine during the millennial age? You're your little Billy. It's like, Billy, I told you, put those cobras down and come and wash your hands and eat supper. You know, I mean, can you imagine that? And yet that's what the Bible says it's going to be like during the kingdom age. Isaiah chapter 60, dealing with Jerusalem, it says, Therefore your gates shall be continually, uh, shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nations and kingdoms which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. Israel, Jerusalem is going to be the, 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 the capital of the world basically at this point. The major superpower during the millennium. And all the other nations are going to flow to, and there's some other passages that talk about it, the, na- the, the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord during the millennium. Isaiah 65, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Can you imagine that? A premature, birth, a, a, a premature death would be considered at 100 years. Well, that person died prematurely. We're going to talk a little bit about, more about that a little bit later. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 describe the millennial temple with exact measurements. There's never been a temple like it. You can't correlate that with any past temple that's ever existed prior to this. Again, if you take the literal uh, interpretation of prophecy because it's so specific, the, the, the exact measurements of it. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 and I'll just read a little bit of it it says now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it and then later on it says many nations shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths there's not going to be a need for pastors during those days, Jesus himself is going to be teaching the Bible studies. Praise God. You probably can't wait for that. It says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. A time of peace unparalleled in human history. Zechariah 12, verses 10 through chapter 14, verse 21. A little brief synopsis says, Living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea, and both summer and winter it shall occur. And if you look at Ezekiel 4, it tells us that wherever these living waters flow out of Jerusalem, the waters that it touches are going to be healed. 
speak specifically about the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. They're going to be healed during this time. Jerusalem's going to be safely inhabited. Everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Fascinating. There's more scripture. In fact, one other one here. Um, King David, I believe, scripture holds it, is going to be resurrected to rule with the Lord from Jerusalem. And I base that on Ezekiel 34 verses 23 and 24 says I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them my servant David he shall feed them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David a prince among them I the Lord have spoken if you were to look at Ezekiel 44 45 46 and 47 the prince is mentioned in there over and over and over again and I believe this is King David resurrected during the millennium Psalm 2 says the Lord's going to rule the nations in righteousness with a rod of iron. And there are many more kingdom age, millennial, old time, Old Testament scriptures. And that's why I don't believe, that's why I believe there's, that's why there's not as much in the New Testament because it's so expounded on in the Old Testament. Again, how do you allegorize or spiritualize away all these prophecies? I have a hard time doing that. In fact, one of the things that I've always kind of believed and I always stick to is, you know, you look back at any past prophecies that have been fulfilled. And any of those prophecies that have been fulfilled have not been fulfilled symbolically. I've never found one. All of them have been fulfilled literally exactly as God said it would happen. And so if all past prophecies have been fulfilled literally, I don't understand why someone would say, well, now these ones are going to be fulfilled symbolically. I I can't see that. Again, this is me. I'm not saying thus says the Lord. But let's go back to verse 4. John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So who are they? Well, they're probably the 24 elders of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And when we were going through those chapters, I said, I, I believe that they're, the 24 elders are representative of the church as, whole, as a whole. It might possibly also include the 12 apostles. Because Jesus said in Luke 22, verses 29 and 30, he's speaking to his disciples. He said, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it could very well be including the 12 apostles. But I think it's also those who take part in the first resurrection, which is in chapter, or verse 6, which includes you and I if you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians 6.3 when he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Jesus, in his letters to the churches, Revelation 2.26, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then Jesus gave in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, the parable of the ten minas. You recall that parable. Uh, there was one who was given ten minas, and, and uh, he earned ten minas. And, the, and uh, basically the, the master said, Well done, servant. Because you were faithful in very little, you will have authority over ten cities. And then the same thing happened to the guy who earned five minas. He was given uh, reign rule over five cities. So... I believe this is representative that the, the 12 apostles or those that are sitting on those thrones. I think it's the church. If Again, if you have a born-again relation of Jesus Christ, it'll include you. It could also include the Old Testament saints that in faith look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ when Jesus set him free from Hades. But then notice that John mentions a different, a distinctly separate group of people from the ones we just mentioned. He says, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the tribulation martyrs. You might say, why are they singled out separately? Well, think about it. John, when John wrote this letter, persecution was tremendous. The church was being persecuted terribly during that time. Christians were in hiding and fear for their lives. And so what an encouragement to hear, you know, hey, 
yeah, you might lose your head, literally. You might lose your life for Jesus Christ, but you're going to reign and rule with him eventually. What a comfort that would be to those. Well, here's the question, though. Who are all these saints judging and ruling over? Remember we talked about that earlier. I mean, the population of the world will have been decimated by war, by famine, natural disasters, and God's various judgments during the Great Tribulation. How many people are left on the planet to rule over? And, and if Christians are given, you know, all Christians throughout the ages have, are given, you know, authority to rule, who, I mean, it's like, are we going to have 20 mayors in one city? I mean, how does that work? And that's where I want to answer this last question. Will there be any survivors at the end of the Great Tribulation? There's one story that Jesus tells, or one parable, I guess it is, the sheep and the goat judgment Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 25. I don't know if I could call it a parable, but Jesus teaches about a unique judgment that will take place in the future, and it's in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. We know it as the sheep and the goat judgment. It's a unique judgment. The sheep... Who are they? They are those who treated Jesus' brethren, the Jewish people, well during the tribulation. They will be allowed to enter the kingdom age or the millennium. They would most likely not have received the mark of the beast because remember those who received the mark of the beast, they've pretty much sealed their fate as far as being cast into the lake of fire. And it would seem that those who didn't receive the mark of the beast... Either I would assume they have put their trust in Christ during the Great Tribulation, um, but for any event, they hadn't refused, they've refused the mark. And so those that treated the Jews well during that time, they, I believe, are the sheep in this judgment. The goats would be the rest who will either at that very moment be cast in the lake of fire or at the great white throne judgment. Um, so it's, it's an interesting passage, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 36, or 46, excuse me. But what's interesting, those entering the millennium, they'll be living in an age where the curse of sin has been lifted uh, from the earth. They'll still have a sin nature, but the curse is going to be lifted from the earth. And finally, there'll be righteous judgment. You know, we look today at things, you know, people get away with murder, literally, today. Justice is not swift today. Justice can be bought today. It's perverted. It's, it's you know, it's, it, there's, there's so much wrong because it's mankind, fallen man that's judging. But in those days, there'll finally be a righteous judgment. Wars will not be allowed. Justice will be pure and swift. And I personally believe people will live hundreds of years like they did prior to the flood. In fact, like we mentioned earlier, a child's death will be considered premature at 100 years old. It's implied also in that same verse that we read earlier that they'll only die as a result of sinning. So people are going to live through this millennium. Death is not going to be common at all during the millennium. This kind of brings me back to our study in Genesis because I think it kind of ties in. You know, Adam and Eve, right? They were created by God. They were the first parents. They had Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain uh, slew Abel, and so then Cain was cursed. He had to go off wandering. And, and, uh, and then they had another, name, another son named Seth. And uh, eventually, the scripture says, Cain took to himself a wife. And a lot of people say, well, wait a minute now. Adam and Eve, Cain, Seth, where did... Where did King get a wife from? It doesn't make sense. It must not be true. I want to read this to you. Genesis 5, verses 3 through 5. It says, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Then verse 4, it says this, After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Listen, my dad was one of 17 kids, all from the same parents. There are two sets of twins in the family, and uh, he was the second. Well, he always thought he was the second oldest, but his twin sister died at three years old of the flu, and apparently I found out just a few years ago that he actually was the third 
uh, which was uh, when he was still alive. I remember telling him, Dad, you're not the second oldest, you're the third oldest. He, he didn't know that. Um, his older brother had told me that. But anyway, so he had one of 17 kids. That's on my dad's side of the family. On that side of the family, I had 66 cousins. And we tried to get family reunions while everybody was still alive, and it just we just couldn't find a place to do it, and we couldn't get everybody together to do it. And eventually, in 2012, one of my cousins said, "You know, enough of this. We got to have too many of the, the the older siblings, too many of the my dad's you know brothers and sisters were dying, so we got to do a reunion. So we had a reunion up in Canada, and, and I remember by this guy, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, "Hey, what's your name?" He's like, "My name's Rod Ripstra." I'm like, "Rod Ripstra." <laughs> I go. Who are you? And he goes, I'm your cousin. I'm like, oh, okay. There were so many cousins I didn't even know. And that just think about that. So then this this reunion we went to, and we're going to go to another one here this summer, but um, they, those siblings, my dad's siblings, they had kids. They got married and had children. Some of them are grandparents now. And so there's, I mean, just think in one generation how many more. I mean, think of your own families if you're an older person here how big your family went from its original size with the in-laws and the children and now grandchildren and stuff. Multiply that by 900 years. How many kids do you think Adam and Eve had? And they had perfect health. You know, I mean, can you imagine? And, and those kids would start having kids right away. And their kids would start having kids. Before you know it, it's like exponentially the, the population of the world just exploded prior to the flood. Well, I think it's going to be the same during the millennium. There's going to be many, many people, and that's why I think when the final rebellion occurs at the end of the millennium, after the, at the end of the thousand years, in verse 8 of chapter 20, it says their numbers as the sand of the sea. You can't even count them for how many people. Think of that. Perfect health, very few deaths, the world, the curse has been lifted off the world. How many? How, it's just perfect for people to be, to be born and raised and stuff. And we're going to just get into that a little bit more next week because this is actually just part one of chapter 20 of the teaching. But So who are those that are going to be uh, uh, at this judge, or excuse me, we're going to be on thrones? You and I, the church, uh, the tribulation martyrs, I believe the Old Testament saints, the 144,000 Jews, we're all going to enter the millennium, but we'll be in our resurrected glorified bodies. The nations that were judged worthy to enter the kingdom age will still be in their human bodies. They'll still have a sin nature because they haven't been resurrected at this point. So why does that take place? And that's one of the questions we're going to look at uh, next week. But verse 5 says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. The fact that it says a first resurrection implies that there's two resurrections because there must be a second one, right? Well, listen, the first resurrection is not a single event, but it's an order of resurrection. Let me, let me give you, uh, let me explain this. First of all, we know Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. I mean, that's the foundation of the Christian faith. The Bible says he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He'll be, of course, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. The dead in Christ, we're told, they're going, to be, they're going to rise again at the rapture of the church. They would be part of the first resurrection. The raptured church, we who join them in the air, would be part of that first resurrection. The Old Testament saints would be part of that first resurrection. I base that on Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The martyred tribulation saints are going to be part of that first resurrection. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists and the remnant of Israel that recognize Jesus as their Savior. Remember, I think it's in Romans, I forgot what chapter it is in Romans, Romans 12 or whatever, where Paul says all Israel will be saved. There'll be a remnant that will be saved during the millennium. And they recognize Jesus as their Savior. They'll be part of that first resurrection. Any people who were not saved prior to the rapture, but who put their trust in Christ during the tribulation and managed to survive, which will probably be very few, probably the same as the sheep in that Matthew 25 sheep and goat judgment, they would be part of the first resurrection. 
The reason why it bases is because over all those people, the second death has no power. All these are blessed to be partakers of the first resurrection because over such, the second death has no power. Their resurrection, our resurrection, is a resurrection to eternal life. So if there is a first resurrection, there must also be a second resurrection. And this is the wicked dead who will be physically resurrected, but their resurrection is a resurrection to judgment, the great white throne judgment, end of chapter 20, and to be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase before. Um, uh, Born once, die twice. Born twice, die only once. I probably flipped it around because I'm used to doing that, but you get the idea. If you're born again, you won't experience the second death. But if you're only born once physically and you never receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll die physically once, the first death, but you'll also die eternally, the second death. So blessed and holy are those who take part in the first resurrection. So the question for each of us here this morning, are you part of the first resurrection? I pray that you are. I pray that you are. Well, we'll uh, tackle the question of why the millennium. And I think it is very important for us to understand why God is doing this. Um, I think it's a very, very, very important reason why. And, and uh, you know, when we get to the great white throne judgment at the end of chapter 20, no one is going to be able to stand up and say, I've been unfairly charged. Uh, the, I, I don't belong here. I don't deserve it. You know, I've been framed or anything like that. They won't be able to do that. And part of that is going through the millennium, and we'll explain that next week. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. I know this morning was kind of a threw a lot of verses and stuff at you, and, and uh, um, very fascinating. It's a, it's a, we could spend a couple weeks going studying on the millennium, and next week we'll look at it a little bit more in depth as well. But uh, my prayer for each of us here this morning there's a few things. First of all, that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he died on the cross. He paid the price for you so you would not have to experience the second death. So uh, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd like to pray with you after the service. I'll be right up here. You can come up here and pray. I'll pray with you to receive Christ. Because I would hate to have you leave this place not having a relationship with Jesus. The other thing I want to, I just think is so important, and I see this so often in the church, is that people, they give Satan way too much credit. Way too much credit. He's just a fallen angel, and he's going to be judged as we saw. If you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, he has no power over you. He has no power over you. We've been set free from the power of, of Satan, from the power of sin and death. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the saints that are here this morning. Lord, I, I, I just rejoice in the fact that, Lord, we see that there is an end to Satan. Lord, the things that we see in this life, that it's not going to continue the way they are. That, Lord, eventually you are going to deal with all the injustice, all the crime. Lord, some of us here, maybe we had, we, maybe we had bad parents or a bad father, Lord, and Father's Day is kind of a painful memory. But, Lord, you're going to make everything right. And you are the, the good father, Lord. You're the good shepherd. And we just thank you for your great love for us. And your love, you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. What a blessing that is. So, Lord, I thank you for the blessing of being part of that first resurrection, that the second death has no power over us. We rejoice in that. Lord, I pray your blessing on your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and be seated for the last song.